So namaste to all of you. We are continuing tonight our discourses about the teachings presented by Krishna to his friend and disciple Arjuna. In the fourth chapter of Bhagavad Gita, Krishna is touching some very important issue about yagya, the sacrifice, and I explained already extensively what that is. And last week we have commented on different forms of yagya, different forms of sacrifice. Of course, Krishna is not reaching all the possible forms of that, but Krishna is describing some typically Indian forms of performing the sacrifice. I, we stopped last time at the shloka number 31, which I am going to read again, where Krishna said, eating the remains of the yagya, the remains of the sacrifice, which is nectar, they reach the eternal Brahman. This world is not for the man who does not perform sacrifice. How then can he have the other, O Arjuna? And I insisted on the second part of this statement, in which Krishna basically said, this world is not for him who offers no sacrifice, much less the world hereafter. This is a very important statement which I said in the end of our previous satsang, shows something even to the people who are not inclined to a life dedicated exclusively to yoga and spiritual practice. The aspiration of different human beings differs. Some people, when they read about Ramakrishna and Milarepa, they want to be like those and they want to consecrate their lives to the spiritual discovery. And some people, they want to do some spirituality because they realize that it is important for the human being to develop some spirituality, but at the same time, they are not ready to do 24-7 to go into spirituality at the level of the champions, at the level of the front runners. And that's why there are people who have enough aspiration and enough spirituality that they at least want to live a clean life. They want to live a sattvic life. They want to live a spiritual life. And those people, for those people, Krishna gives teachings which address both for the major spiritual seekers, but he also gives advice which addresses to the householder, to the layman, to the person who just is trying to improve their spirituality in a more minor way. And that's why I started by commenting the second part of this statement, of this shloka, in which Krishna says mysteriously, this world is not for the man who does not perform sacrifice. Like you all know, the dictum made famous by some movies, the world is not enough. Like some people want to conquer the world. Either we talk about Genghis Khan or the Shogun of Japan or I don't know what other uh, imperial soul, what other conqueror of this world who are simply trying to obtain this world by conquering it. Or we are speaking about people 
who are trying to get a hold of this world through economical power, such as the people of extreme wealth, the consortiums, the corporations, the banking cartels, and all those. Therefore, these people are trying to get the world. And some people manage pretty much. I was reading the other day an article, a newspaper article about one of the major financials of the world. And the article claimed this person has reached a power which is similar to the government to which he belongs. He was an American citizen and he said even the American government has to consult with this person before they do a movement because this person as an individual has reached so much financial power that he can basically disturb the government seriously. Therefore, the language is for either people who want to obtain it in terms of prosperity and material things or in terms of raw power, that people want the world. And actually Krishna says, this world is not for the man who does not perform sacrifice. Which means, a person like Genghis Khan, or like Alexander the Great, who got to conquer or to control a large part of the world that was known to them, the British Empire under Queen Victoria, which came with a dictum, the sun is never setting over the British Empire, the biggest empire the world has seen until today. Or great financials like the aforementioned one in this example. According to Krishna, how can these people get the world? There must be some implicit sacrifice. This is why I say, open your minds because the concept of sacrifice is not to be taken literally. Like you can say, what sacrifice did Queen Elizabeth I or Queen Victoria on top of the power of the British Empire, what sacrifice did they make? Because when you say sacrifice, you expect that they were going in front of the Vedic fire and throwing butter into the fire or throwing sesame seeds into the fire or going in front of a tabernacle and bringing white lambs and burning them to ashes for God or whatever other forms of sacrifice you have seen in history. Well, maybe Genghis Khan or maybe Alexander the Great or maybe Queen Victoria and the whole administrative apparatus of the British Empire, maybe great financial, uh, powerful, overwhelmingly powerful people, such as, I don't know, the clan of the Rothschilds or of the Rockefellers, maybe they did not do sacrifice in the way in which you read it in Bhagavad Gita. But Krishna says some sacrifice, they surely have done, they must have done some sacrifice. Because sacrifice is not only the formal religious thing. There are sacrifices which are unseen. And I quoted for you last time and another time the statement of Gurdjieff, of the great modern initiate Gurdjieff, who stands on the borderline between Western modernism and Eastern traditionalism, and Gurdjieff, for example, claims 
that even the people who die in traffic accidents are a form of sacrifice. But if you ask any skeptical person today, any skeptical, atheistic, agnostic, materialistic citizen who lives in one of the big western cities today, they know that every year 1,250 die in car accidents in their country. But nobody thinks that those deaths represent a sacrifice because people have lost any feeling of magic, religion, subtle universes. Nobody can perceive it. So we commit a sacrifice, but that sacrifice, we don't see it, and normal people don't understand that it's a sacrifice. Only a great master, only a great clairvoyant can see that actually that is a camouflaged form of sacrifice. That's why, according to the statement of Krishna, the things are, this world is not for the man who does not perform sacrifice. Therefore, all those who had obtained this world, what does it mean to obtain this world? It means you have a successful family. It means you are having a great house. It means you are having a successful business. It means you become a successful, I don't know, wealthy person. It means you have power. These are the people who are generally admired in this world. And these people get the world. They have success in the world. And it's true that many of the ascetic yogis who lived in the time of Krishna, they couldn't care less about the Queen Victoria type of people or the Rothschild type of people or people who build the pyramids or the Eiffel Tower or the likes of them. But that does not mean that those people did not get the world. So don't interpret it as black and white. When Krishna says this world is not for the man who does not perform sacrifice, that the fact that you have the world doesn't mean that you have the whole world, that you have become the world conqueror. That was the dream of every conqueror, from Genghis Khan to Napoleon and from Queen Victoria to Alexander the Great. Everybody dreamt to become the universal ruler, the master of the world, but they were not. And therefore, it's not about becoming the master of the world. It's about having some degree of success in the world. It's about having a chunk of success in this world. And therefore, what I'm trying to say here is that you, everybody who doesn't do yoga or any spiritual discipline, especially in its Vedantic, ascetic, nihilistic ways which says I don't want the world the world is an illusion it's a dream I want God and I don't want the world all the people who do not do this they want some success in the world they want the world like it's we are not talking about success in Purusha in the spirit we are talking about success in Prakriti that in the world of manifestation, in the world of the nature, you want some degree of fulfillment. And there would be some people, I'm saying it again, who would say, no, not me. I don't want any degree of fulfillment. Fine. You don't want, you don't want. Go to Purusha, get out of this world, get out of samsara, go into nirvana. 
See if that satisfies you. That's what you ask for. That's what you get. You get zero in Prakriti. You get success in Purusha. Farewell. That is, of course, a very spiritual attitude. A bit of a radical, but very spiritual attitude. But, for example, a guru like, let's say, Swami Shivananda, he built an ashram. If he built an ashram, he didn't want to invest effort and karma yoga and build an ashram which will fall apart today, two years later. He wrote some books. If he wrote some books, he didn't want to write some books which would be a fiasco and which would be burned at stake by the Inquisition. Like everybody who does a spiritual action, does that spiritual action with a view of some greater good. That means automatically people who are not 100% nihilistic, like people who say, no, no, I don't want anything in this world ever. The people who therefore want to do something in this world, they need success in this world. Please pay attention because that's a teaching which we give in yoga often. We give it in the, when we teach the law of the perfect accomplishment. We give it when we teach about bhavana in Kashmiri Shaivism. It's a fundamental teaching. People sometimes think, and it's wrong, I will say it from the very beginning, that if you do something very spiritual, and if you renounce and are very detached, and don't care about money, house, your body, and you want to get out of samsara and to go to nirvana, then God, or if you don't believe in God, then the spiritual forces of this universe, the Buddhas of the past, present, and future, or whatever you believe in as spiritual forces, they are going to reward you. You say, no, 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 I don't want uh, a handsome body, I don't want flourishing health, I don't want to live for long, I don't want money, I don't want comfort, I don't want fame, just give me God, just give me the Supreme Spirit. And it sounds very beautiful. And then people still hope that people who do this, they are going to be raised on a pedestal and somehow get anyhow fame and money and power. But it's not true. Purusha and Prakriti are two separate domains. When you invest in Purusha, you get Purusha. When you invest in Prakriti, you get Prakriti. People think that because you are good spiritually... The providence, the Shakti of God, the grace, as I said, the Buddhas of the past, present and future or Shambhala must take care of you. And you are going to be provided with health and with wealth and whatever. It's completely not true. The fact that you do something very powerful spiritually in terms of Purusha, in terms of the void in terms of the Buddha nature, does not contain in it, there is no small script or paragraph in that contract, which says that on top of it, because you have been so detached and so extraordinarily exemplary, you are actually going to get on top of it some extra bonuses in this world. It's completely inexact. This is the expectation, the foolish Svadistanistic, romantic, wishful thinking, expectation 
of some fools who say that because you are spiritually detached, God likes you and is going to give you some presents and treat you well. That's not true. The laws of the mind deny that totally. It's just wishful thinking. That is why the people who want to do something in this world, they have to invest in this world, a part of it. The success in this world does not come because you had success in the other world. Success in the other world stays in the other world, and success in this world stays in this world. Because if it would be so, then it would also mean that people who have a huge success in this world, they are quickly becoming spiritualized and enlightened. Like rich people who build the pyramids and who did I don't know what, they should automatically get something from God because of their great power. And it's not true. The success in Prakriti does not become success in Purusha or in spirit. And the success in spirit does not become success in Prakriti. Thus, pay attention to this statement because Krishna says clearly, this world is not for him who offers no sacrifice, much less the world hereafter, which is an even tougher statement. Therefore, Krishna says, you are a nihilist ascetic, farewell, then you need in success in the world after. Even then, you have to sacrifice to God. Because he says, even much less, like you cannot have success in this world. You cannot raise a healthy child. You cannot rub two pennies together. You cannot unfold a great project. And you expect that you are going to become a Jivan Mukta, an enlightened being. Like to become a Jivan Mukta is for losers. It's completely not right. It completely doesn't sound right. So Krishna actually says, first, people become capable to achieve things in this world. And then some people may give up these and focus on the next, like go to the next step. But if you can't even achieve things in this world, then what sort of utopian, phantasmagoric person are you to think that you cannot start a successful company, but you can reach nirvana. That's what Krishna says. And therefore, pay attention again and again. There may be that indeed, you are an efficient. Remember, the word is virya, efficiency. Like in the lecture on brahmacharya, that some people in this world have efficiency. Either they make money, or they raise children, or they do academic studies, they are full of efficiency and they succeed. And other people are repeatedly and constantly inefficient, non-efficient. Therefore, Krishna says, you may be an efficient person and then you may go for an even higher goal. That higher goal can be with the manifestation or without the manifestation. If you are a radical Buddhist, if you are a radical Vedantin, if you are a radical Christian ascetic, then you want to reach God with a complete contempt towards the things of the world. Your body can fall apart. You don't own anything. 
you don't do or fulfill anything in this world, you have no name, no fame, no nothing, all you have is that you consecrate everything to God. While that, as I told you often, is not the point of view of Tantra, the Tantric mysticism says that you have to achieve both at the same time, Nevertheless, that is an option. Many, many mystics, many men and women who practiced spirituality, they took this extreme angle to spirituality in which they simply said, I've got 5,000 lifetimes in which I dabbled into things of this world. Now in this life I want to give up this world completely as a sort of with a vengeance. I, I want to compensate for all my attachment and materialism of thousands of lifetimes and now I just want to go into pure spirit having contempt towards everything which is material, social, manifested or stuff like this. But Krishna says... If you want to achieve something in this world, the first thing which needs to be done is sacrifice. Even the people who want to transcend this world and to go to the next, they also need to do sacrifice, says Krishna, only that those people need to do a more radical, a more subtle, a more divine sacrifice. Sacrifice works for all. Sacrifice works for people who do not plan to reach enlightenment in this lifetime. Sacrifice works for people who plan to reach both enlightenment and worldly accomplishments in this lifetime. Sacrifice works even for those who want to obtain no worldly success or accomplishment, but just full spiritual accomplishment. For all these three categories, still sacrifice remains the word. Only the sacrifice is different in scope. And thus, this statement is very important and it deserves to be meditated a lot. This world is not for the man who does not perform sacrifice. Any of you wants to have a good family, successful children, academic degrees and distinctions, money, house, fame, I don't know what other accomplishments you want to have. You want the world, but the world is not for those who do not perform sacrifice. Therefore, any one of you who wants success in the world, you have to be prepared to do sacrifice. The, the terrible problem is that people have become forgetful. As I underlined at least in two, three satsangs until now, people have become selfish and blind. And the selfishness says, why should I perform sacrifice to Indra or to I don't know whom, to Shiva or something? Uh, those big uh, egoistic ones up there, why do they need my sacrifice? I am a poor person down here and I still have to keep sacrificing. Exactly like selfish people who went out of the tithing system in the church and they said, I, who am just a simple farmer and I'm counting my corn from today till tomorrow, I have to give 10% of my crops to the church and the church lives in luxury and they have the biggest buildings and monasteries and libraries and I don't know what and schools and so on and I have to give 10%. Those 10% you don't give them for the church. 
It's only the selfish appearance that you give them for the destinatory of that. You actually give them for you. And uh, it's the same with God. People say, why would I give something to God? And the answer is, if you don't give, your own subconscious mind doesn't allow you to receive. Because our mind works on a take and give, on a give and take, on a give and receive basis. And that is why, remember that the sacrifice, the, the selfish people don't want to do sacrifice because they think that it's exploitation. They think it's a sort of conspiracy against the poor people. Oh, proletarians, wake up. Religion is the opium of the masses. You have been exploited for centuries. That's the bullshit of Karl Marx and the likes of them. And other people are simply blind, ignorant. They have become tamasic, spiritually asleep. They believe in beer and in Manchester United. And they, don't, they are not ready to do any more sacrifices because they are blind and they don't see the usefulness of this. And therefore, there are people today, everybody who is not a radical nihilist ascetic, wants to get something in the world. I met even spiritual people who said, oh, I just want to, have a, to be in the garden of an ashram and to have a little hut in the bottom of the garden. You still want something. You want the world. You want a hut in a peaceful ashram, in a monastery. You want something. And Krishna says, the world, even that little thing, is not for you. You will not get it if you do not sacrifice. People say, but Swami, people do get lots of things. They do get lots of things because they gained merit in another life, and now they live on their savings, they live on their good karma from a previous life, or... People are performing unconscious, unwilling sacrifice, such as the accidents, the traffic accidents, which kill people, and by which humanity apparently pays a blood toll to some demons which are incarnated as the automobiles, and which we, they serve us because we fulfill our chores, our tasks, with their help. And therefore... The statement remains, this world is not for him who offers no yagya. Therefore, those who have the world, either people with big money and financial power, or people with all sorts of other military or political power, they consciously, or more often than that, unconsciously, did sacrifice something. For example... One of the Indian gurus that I met, he illustrating this, he said, can you imagine that after the Second World War, Germany in the West, in Europe, and Japan in Asia were reduced to shambles and occupied, and then they have been charged with paying damages, war damages, in the value which in those days was of many, many billions and today would probably go into the tens or hundreds with the devaluation of the currency, with the inflation. And Germany and Japan, which were the most screwed of the nations after the Second World War, 
in the 1980s and 90s, they were kicking ass. They had become the richest, the most powerful, the most thriving of all the economies. And there you get the biggest investment and this. And this yoga guru said, ignorant people cannot see. But these two nations, through the acts of war which they did, they did perform sacrifice. That sacrifice was that they killed people. They offered human lives. And you can say, oh, how horrible. But the demons don't care that it's horrible. That's the nature of magic. You cut the throat of a chicken, of a black hen, and give it to a demon. And that given demon gives you health, or long life, or charisma, or something. And so what? You can say, but aren't you getting bad karma? Yes, you are getting bad karma. But at the same time, you did a magic sacrifice, which also works. That is why, think about this, even the Second World War involved sacrifice. Millions of human sacrifices. It's a very disturbing idea. And those were not sacrifices to God. God would not accept such sacrifices. But there is magic. There is black magic in this world. Yeah, sure, then Japan gets earthquakes and tsunamis and nuclear catastrophes and so on. That's the karma. But the sacrifice also is there. And the sacrifice has its effect. And the karma, in its own good time, also has its effect. Thus, try to open your mind and to realize that sacrifice means a lot of things. Sacrifice does not mean that you go to a Brahmin priest and give him 500 rupees and say, please throw some butter and sesame seeds into the fire for me. And that's my sacrifice. Yes, you can do that. In Thailand, they think that you gain merit by giving food to the monks, by, being, by giving donations to build monasteries. In India, they give money to the gurus, to the ashrams, to the various things which they consider spiritual. In Europe, you still, you still have people who give donations to the monasteries. I know people who have established monasteries from scratch. In the 21st century, people who put $500,000 and they started a monastery from fresh, in a, in a virgin place, in an empty place. And it's all a donation. And those pay people, people are founders of monasteries. And that is their sacrifice. And such sacrifices which are religious are actually pretty divine. But in this world, there are sacrifices which are not only to God. As I wish to remind to you who have been before in such satsangs, and to tell to you who have never been in a satsang about Bhagavad Gita and who didn't hear about Bhagavad Gita before, Krishna at some later point in this text, he shows very clearly that there exist four categories of sacrifices. Sacrifice to the tamasic entities, which are the spirits of the dead and some of the low, very low dark spirits, which is practiced a lot in shamanism, in animism. Sacrifices to some rajasic spirits, the asuras, the titans, as called by the Greeks, the, the anti-divine spirits, the demonic spirits, which have lots of power. 
such as the stock exchange money and stuff like that. There is sacrifice to the devas, to the spirits of light, to the gods, which is sattvic sacrifices, and they are already kind of spiritual. And then there is the purely spiritual sacrifice, which goes above the gods themselves, and which goes, therefore, to the one God, to the cosmic consciousness, to the divine absolute consciousness, which is beyond all those other forums, beyond all those other levels of consciousness, and which represents the ultimate reality in this universe. And, of course, Krishna is trying to teach Arjuna to do the fourth level, the ultimate sacrifice, the divine sacrifice. But Krishna is constantly aware that people are doing sacrifices of all the other levels. And the Vedic society is not very friendly with the tamasic sacrifices, the dark ones done to the spirits of the dead, not very friendly to the rajasic sacrifices done to the asuras, to the anti-divine entities, to the demons. But the Vedic society was trying to encourage the level three of sacrifice. And Krishna comes and says, even that is too little for me. You can do better. You can go beyond the gods to the one cosmic consciousness. However, in the Vedic society, Krishna says, if you want the world, you can do preferably sattvic sacrifices to the gods. And then you are going to get healthy children. Then you are going to get wealth. Then you are going to get name and fame, if that's what you want, a career. Then you are going to get long life. Then you are going to get healthy cattle good crops, or whatever people along various societies wanted out of nature, out of life in this world. Therefore, it is important again and again for you to remember, whatever thing you want in this life, in this world, if you do not make some sacrifice, it will not work. The first man who built the first engineer, who built an airplane that took off by itself, not pulled by horses or with rubber strings, or the first airplane who took off, which took off by itself independently. This happened in 1905. That man in his life built something like 21 airplanes, all very primitive, this kind of airplanes, which were made of cloth, and bamboo sticks and something like very primitive, very light, old-fashioned airplanes. And this engineer, after he built 21 airplanes, which all of them were successes, he said one very beautiful thing. He said, in an aircraft, if you don't invest soul, it will not fly. Like you have to put your soul into it. And I describe this in the lecture, in the Agama lecture, about yoga asana and the jiva, the jivatman, how it is this investment of the soul. Like you put your soul and your enthusiasm into something. Some people would say it, the best is to give your soul to God. Yeah, but this engineer was perhaps not very religious. And he put his soul into airplanes. 
His God was airplanes. We don't know if that made him enlightened. We don't know if that made him even happy. We don't know if he died a wise death or if he was fulfilled and if after his death he went to paradise. That's a totally different story. But he got the world. He got his piece of the world. He got success. He is known in the history of aircraft industry as the first man who took off by independent means with an airplane and one of the great pioneers of aviation. You have to invest something, at least soul. Like you have to spend 30 years in a barn like Miss Maria Marie Curie to discover radium. Miss Marie Curie, her husband died partly because of the radiations. She burned herself with radioactive materials. She spent 30 years of not attending parties and social events, but living in a barn where it was cold in the winter and hot in the summer. But she is the only woman in the world who took two Nobel Prizes, one for chemistry and one for physics, for the discovery of a new chemical element, radi radium, and for the discovery of radioactivity as manifested in radium. So you have to sacrifice something. Miss Curie sacrificed her health, her entertainment, her fun. She sacrificed her life. She sacrificed her marriage. She couldn't attend too much to her children. So she sacrificed her family because she wanted to discover a new chemical element. And she did. So she got the world. Some people would say, but I wouldn't sacrifice all that for that. Good for you. You wouldn't. Marie Curie did. Everybody has to sacrifice something for something. Of course, it is a very bad idea to sacrifice to the tamasic entities, to the dark entities, because this is like a pact with some darker realms. It is not such a good idea to sacrifice to the rajasic demonic entities, because that is also an investment into something which will bind you. It is okay, says Krishna, to invest to the gods, to sacrifice to the gods. That's at least sattvic, and it keeps you pure, balanced, more spiritual, and you are going to be a more spiritual person. And, of course, the best is karma yoga, consecrating directly, sacrificing directly to God. And that will give you spirituality and salvation. But one way or another, people have to sacrifice. If anybody lives on the face of this earth with the idiotic idea that, oh, I don't need to sacrifice, I have no debt towards anybody. That's just an anarchistic and very stupid, ignorant ego speaking. You do not have the real knowledge. The real knowledge is that as long as you live in this world, you have to sacrifice to keep the water flowing. Like I gave the comparison last week, that this is like the water in nature. If you stop the water from vaporizing, it will never rain again, and then you'll endure drought and death. Therefore, the water must circulate so we constantly have vaporization and rain and this is the cycle of nature. If you stop giving sacrifices to the gods, 
the gods will not be able to pour back blessings to you. And we will result into spiritual drought and spiritual death. Thus, those who know, they constantly sacrifice. And Krishna is adamant about this. He says, this world is not for the man who does not perform sacrifice. And then, how can he hope then to have the other, much less the world hereafter? Remember that the sacrifice is different. Somebody who wants to have the world hereafter performs direct divine sacrifice. I give my soul to God. I give my joy to God. I give all my aspiration to God. And the person who wants to have some accomplishments in this world sacrifices also to God or to the devas, to the gods, but in a slightly different way because the purpose is different. That's why, please learn at, this, this, at least this, those of you who had the good karma to participate in this season, in this series of satsangs, and you heard these great spiritual secrets, which I normally do not comment in the Agama courses, because this is not directly from yoga, this is a great teaching and it's a great esoteric thing, which even in Bhagavad Gita is not explained clearly. And you got the esoteric metaphysical explanations of this. Remember, either you want to reach nirvana or you want to do things in this world, you want to raise a successful family or whatever you want to do, never forget to sacrifice. If Ask yourself, what am I going to sacrifice? And if you are going to say, I'm going to sacrifice two grains of rice every month, then you'll probably burst into laughter because your famous guru, Swami Common Sense Ananda, will tell you your sacrifice is bollocks. Two grains of rice for you to raise a successful family is like you are mocking the gods. It's too little and you know it very well. It's not enough. So your common sense, which proceeds from your deeper feelings and from your intuition, will tell you very clearly what is enough. And as long as you feel it's not enough, it actually is not enough. And you have to sacrifice until your own subconscious mind declares itself satisfied and says, yeah, now it's enough. Now you deserve to receive grace. Now you have paid the price. If you try to cheat on this law, you are going to cheat on yourselves. And it's a bitter thing to do. That is why, remember, success in this world and in acquiring immortality is based on sacrifice. Never have any hesitation about that. And now we can turn to the first sentence of this important shloka where Krishna was actually giving a more practical example of something which does happen in the spiritual circles in India. He said, eating the remains of the sacrifice of the yagya, which is nectar, they go to the eternal Brahman. They reach the eternal Brahman. What's this? In the old India, this is mostly a Vaishnava ritual 
but the Shaivas of India also practice it. So it's more or less a universal Indian practice. People who are very religious, at least once per day, they offer the food to God. Like, for example, the Vaishnavas, they offer it to Vishnu or to Krishna himself, the, dev the Krishna devotees. And you can see that, and it is very incomprehensible for Westerners, that the Hare Krishnas, who generally have all these idiosyncratic things which make them look like a terrible cult and a sect, and they have so many cultish, sectarian, bizarre behaviors, nevertheless, this part of their teaching is from Bhagavad Gita, and they did not invent it. This is something which India has done for thousands of years. What do you do? You cook a meal. You cook a delicious meal. And who partakes the first in the meal? If you are in a kingdom and the cooks cook a meal, who is the first who eats? The king, always. Eating before the king, exception made when they had a man to taste it for poison, but except that which is an ugly Kali Yuga addition to the routines, the first, it is a dishonor to stick your spoon in the spot and to taste of the food before the king. The king must have the pot of food, virgin, untouched, unblemished. The honor, like the king is the guest of honor. It is a complete insult to give to the king a food out of which somebody already took some. Because then that food is not the food. Then that food becomes, logically and etymologically speaking, the leftovers. It's not food. The, it was food when it was complete. Now it's leftovers because somebody already snatched a part of it. People were very careful about this. Now, this example with the king goes in the family. In the old days, the first person who ate in a family was the head of the family, the patriarch, the chief of the clan, the king of the family. Nobody ate of the food, not because the king or the chief of the family would beat them up or punish them. It was considered dishonoring like the wife of Mahatma Gandhi if Mahatma Gandhi was the chief of the family she would first have Mahatma Gandhi taste of the food it's as simple as that it is simply as above so below the universe is analogous this is the law of correspondence there is similarity as it happens with the king so it happens in the family as it happens with the king, so it happens with God. Therefore, the first who always partakes of the food is God. Therefore, the first food symbolically goes to God. So that's what Hindus have done since long, long time. You cook food and a little bit. It doesn't need to be much. If you are a very poor person, we're talking about a spoonful of food. You create, but not something which your subconscious mind will deride so that you feel absurd or ridiculous or offensive. Remember, the judge is in you. Your own conscience is the judge. Your own subconscious mind judges you. 
So if you deny Swami common sense Ananda, his common sense, then your own subconscious mind will punish you. When you die and you confront your guardian angel, you will blame yourself. You will be your own most merciless judge. Because your own conscience rejects or condemns some things. And that is why you take enough food. In the old days, the approximation of people was tithing, which for those of you who are not of English language means one-tenth. So you cook one kilo of rice, you take a hundred grams of the rice, you put them on a dish, and you put them in front of Vishnu, on the altar of Vishnu or of Shiva. And you say, Om Namah Shivaya, Om Namah Shivaya. Oh Lord, please eat with us, partake with us. And egoistic, ignorant people will say, what a terrible waste. You wasted a hundred grams of perfectly good rice. What a bullshit, what an ignorance. What a, and why waste that? That selfishness, greed, ego, egoism, ignorance. And the habit was, you offer the 10%, or something which your mind considers good, and then you eat. And the law of it as expressed by Krishna is, those who eat the remnants of the sacrifice. Now, it's not sacrifice anymore. Now it's remnants. Now it has become leftovers, because God has eaten already. He has been given the first place. Very beautifully, like in the statement of the British mystic quoted in your papers, who says, if you do not give the, to God the first place, you don't give God any place. God can have the first place or none. There is no that God is secondly important for me. No, God can be only the first. And if not, you are not prepared to do the right thing. So, Eating the remains of the yagya. I eat the 90, but the remains, the leftovers means like 10%. No, the leftovers means 90%. The bulk of it is just a symbolic gesture. After we give to God, then we can have fun because now we are having a legitimate food. And he says... Eating the remains of the yagya. Because in the, in the yagya of Hinduism, the priests would bless the food, would make a fire ceremony. A lot of food would be prepared. The priest would take a pinch from here and a pinch from there and a few sabji and a few this. And it has been given to the fire and to Indra or to Shiva or God knows to whom. And then you take it and you eat of it. Once it has been sanctified, if you shared your food with God, giving to God the first place, then it has become sacred. And he says, eating the remains of Yagya, which is like nectar. Nectar, Soma, Amrita, is what the gods eat to keep or drink to keep themselves immortal. The food which was offered first to God becomes nectar of immortality. Any one of you wants to purify your food, now you know what to do. Tonight you have learned what to do. This is how you purify it. You first give a part, a reasonable part of it, 
according to your own feeling, to the divine consciousness. Then that food is graced, it is blessed by this. And therefore, he says, those who eat the remnants of the sacrifice, which are actually the bulk, which are like nectar, go to the eternal Brahman. This is a typical example of how to have the world. Because then he says, again, what I commented for so long time, this world is not for the man who does not perform sacrifice. You do not want to give that manji 10% of your food to God. Because you think this is just a superstition. This is just some bullshit belief. And you don't. And therefore, the world is not for you. Your body will not be as healthy as you hope it will be. You will not live as long as you hope you'll live. Unless, of course, you can be a black magician and offer chicken blood and whatever, and then you will get a long life, but not from the gods in a sadvic, harmonious, spiritual way, but maybe as a gift from some demons. And of course, meanwhile, you accumulate a horrible negative karma, because there is a price you pay for doing lower types of magic. Therefore, it's not wise. The only two things which Krishna sanctions is perform sattvic sacrifice for your sattvic success in this world and perform transcendent sacrifice for your success in the transcendent world. That is the lesson that you need to learn from this shloka and from all this commentary on sacrifice. Without sacrifice, you live your life as a parasite. Somebody vaporizes the water and it rains. But it, didn't ra it doesn't rain because you did something. It rains because some people do it. Remember in the Bible, the episode when the angels of God go announce Abraham that they want to go to Sodom and Gomorrah because very bad things have been heard up there about what's happening down in those places. And when Abraham, or whatever the name of the patriarch was, asked, so what's going to happen next? They say, if it's true what we heard, we are going to wipe those places out, which, by the way, later apparently happened. And then Abraham says, but if there are some righteous people, won't they die together with everybody? If you nuke the whole city, won't the righteous die with the unrighteous? And then the angel of God says, if we find 50 people, there were, according to theologians, according to Christian theology, there were 500,000 people living in those two cities altogether and the surrounding neighboring areas. 50 out of 500,000 is a very small percentage. You calculate, it's 1 in 1,000 or 1 in 10,000. And so the angel of God says, if we find 50 righteous persons, we'll spare all the 499,950 sinners. We'll spare them for the sake of those 50. Like five, 50 people sacrifice... And 500,000 piggyback, live on their back, because 50 still sacrifice. And 500,000 are parasites. They don't, spiritually they don't contribute with anything. They piggyback on the spiritual effort of the others. 
and then Abraham, like a worthy Jew, he starts bargaining with God himself. And he says, what if there would be 45? And the angel of God says, okay, so be it. Even if we five only 45, and he keeps on pushing. What about if there were only 40? Now, if you exceeded to 45, what about 40? And he manages to push God down to five. And eventually God says, if we find five righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah, we'll spare the whole city for those five. So great the miracle of sacrifice is. That is why if you don't sacrifice, you piggyback on somebody's back. You are simply living as spiritual parasites. Sacrifice. Either you want things in this world or you want things in the other world, learn to sacrifice. The sacrifice is bringing the blessing upon you. And then Krishna continues thus, ending this important knowledge. In this way, like now he concluded, he described so many sacrifices, including yoga, things like pranayama, mantras, fasting, and other things. You remember, those of you who listened to me speaking about those, if not, look for the recordings, which are supposed to be online. In this way, yagya, sacrifices of many kinds, are set forth in the words of the Veda. And I would wish to add also many sacrifices which the Vedas didn't even figure out. Like the Vedas are not the Alpha and the Omega, as much as the Vedic people wanted to think so. There has been spiritual creativity outside of the Vedas and outside of India. And other people from Turkey, from Europe, from other places, from Japan, they also figured out ways of performing sacrifice which are very creative and they have nothing to do with the Vedas. So today we know much more than that. But Krishna speaks in a narrow environment in which people were still very tributary to the Vedic culture and to the Vedic values. And he says, in this way, yagyas of many kinds are set forth in the words of the Veda. Like he tells, he shows to him that this sacrifice is a very rich value, very universal. Know them all as born of action. That's a very tricky statement because action in Sanskrit means karma. The word for action is karma. And karma means both action but it also means the law of action and reaction, and therefore it means the effect of the action, the byproduct, the boomerang, the bouncing back of the action. And here Krishna, as you probably remember, or if you're not, you are hearing it now for the first time, in the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna is constantly trying to set the foundation to teach his friend and disciple Arjuna about karma yoga, how to act in a yogic way, how to act in a divine way. And that's why Krishna all the time tries to put it and he tries to pull things to his point. He has to make a point and he did not forget, he did not get lost into the argumentation. And therefore, he says, there are many yagyas, people do sacrifices of so many things, sanctioned by the Vedas, all of them are born from karma, karma yoga, right action. Because what Krishna tries to do, he's trying to tell to Arjuna, Arjuna, stop being ignorant and weak 
and stop all this drama and stand up and be a spiritual person and do karma yoga, do divine action. And therefore, he always points to this. He says, even the yagyas, all these various forms of sacrifice which are in the Vedas and others which the Vedas never figured out, all the forms of divine sacrifice we would say today, they are all born of the same principle of divine action, of karma yoga, of the fact that action is superior to inaction, as Krishna himself said. And he says, thus knowing, you shall find liberation. Like Krishna says, sacrifice is automatically karma yoga. That's why you do not need to consecrate the fact that you do a sacrifice. The fact that you do a sacrifice is already a consecration through its own nature. And therefore he says, don't bother about sacrifice. Sacrifice, yagyas, they are already born out of the principle of karma, karma yoga, and divinely integrated action. And knowing this, you can reach liberation. It is claimed in the Vedic tradition that even fulfilling these householder duties, one can reach to a certain form of spiritual emancipation. The, the pillars of a successful life in the Vedic society include kama, sensual satisfaction, artha, material prosperity, as well as dharma, religious integration, and moksha, liberation, spiritual emancipation. Therefore, what he says, these various kinds of sacrifices are all uh, given to Brahman. They are all born of action. But born of action does not mean literally what it means in English. Born of action means that this is divine action. It's the principle of karma. But it cannot be translated in another way because the word karma means action in Sanskrit. So most people would be tempted to interpret this like an obvious truism, like some sort of ridiculous, banal statement that all these yagyas, they are born of egg. Like you have to do action to do some sacrifice. Sure, you have to wash your clothes and go in front of the fire and throw some butter into it, and that's born of action. Like a lazy person wouldn't do that because they are too lazy. That's not what Krishna means, that this is action. It means the sacrifice of many, many kinds, if it's divine as described in the Vedas, all the sacrifice is already attuned to the principle of karma yoga and divine action, and you don't need to worry about it. And thus, living a life of sacrifice, of daily, constant sacrifice, you are actually consecrating a lot to the divine, and this you can find thus even spiritual freedom, even spiritual emancipation. That's a sort of karma yoga through ritual. And this would be a line which would be followed by a brahmin, by a priest, by a pujari, by somebody who is all the time officiating sacrifices and his life or her life is made constantly of sacrifice. And even this is a path do sacrifice all the time and this sacralizes you, this sanctifies you.
And now he starts coming to the last part, which we won't finish tonight. There will be a final session to finish this chapter on the next week, on Thursday, our last satsang for this season. And the theme of this chapter, as I told you last time, is chapter 4, is called the Yoga of Knowledge. It's about knowledge. He, con he is trying to, first of all, make the mind of Arjuna clear. And now he started on a roundabout way, going and describing sacrifice, yagya, showing to him, first of all, that the whole world is based on sacrifice, and therefore what he is asked to do is nothing but a karma yoga of a more peculiar type, but nevertheless, it is a karma yoga. And in, in the shloka number 33, therefore, he comes back to his favorite theme of knowledge. From here on till 42, the end, the last one, it's all like a hymn to knowledge. It's an ode to knowledge. But knowledge, the word knowledge, jnana, does not mean in Sanskrit the knowledge which you read in the newspapers. The knowledge of facts, like I'm a curious person and I would like to know this and that. Knowledge you find even in gossip. Did you hear who had sex with who lately in the last week? That's not the knowledge about which Krishna talks. To know the gossip of whoever, all the drama, whoever had sexual relationships with whoever, that's on Svadhisthana and it doesn't bring, that's a partial type of knowledge. It's not a the knowledge. The knowledge is in Vishuddha Chakra. The poison of Vishuddha Chakra of the fifth element is ignorance, lack of knowledge. And the, the solution to it is knowledge. And this knowledge is a spiritual knowledge. This knowledge means, what do you say? This is a jnanin. This is a person of jnana yoga. This is a person of knowledge. Knowledge means to know who you are. Why you live on the face of this earth. That's knowledge. Knowledge means to know who created you and why. Knowledge means to know what is dharma. Knowledge means to know what is the purpose of life on this planet. This is knowledge. It's the knowledge which is acquired through the opening of the higher levels of our mind. It is the knowledge which is obtained through meditation and through the shastras, through the spiritual inspiration and from your guru and from your own spiritual experiences done properly. So knowledge is exalted, not as simple book knowledge or fact knowledge that's extremely superficial. And here he comes. He says, better, superior even than the yagya through material means, because mostly it was through material means, is the yagya of knowledge, O scorcher of enemies, O Arjuna. All action without exception, O Arjuna, culminates in knowledge. Action. Action means karma yoga, divine action. Action which is divinely integrated. All action, says he, culminates in knowledge. There is knowledge. Of course, knowledge is burning sometimes. And thus we can describe people 
who have tried to do divine action and the hat was a little bit too big for their head, so to speak, and they did not resist the effects of their own knowledge. Like knowledge was too painful. For example, in India, there did exist in the 20th century a great humanitarian doctor who decried the fate of the lepers because the lepers were treated as outcasts, lower than outcasts, as non-humans. Indeed, the treatment of the lepers in India, as well as in medieval Europe, was horrendous. And people had a terrible fear and disgust because the lepers, those afflicted badly, they looked terrible, horrendous, frightening, and also because people were afraid that they would get contaminated. And thus the lepers were ostracized in, in terrible ways, in extremely rude ways. And this Indian doctor, unfortunately, he was not like Shivananda. Shivananda, Swami Shivananda, realizing this, he made a colony for lepers. He said, I, Swami Shivananda, from the donations which people give to me, I shall buy separately a piece of land, which is in Lakshmanjula, today, a couple of kilometers north of the Shivananda ashram. And in that place, he surrounded it with a fence. And he created a colony for lepers. And he said, if you are lepers, you don't need to hide in ditches and holes in the mountains and so on. You can come and live in a place. I'm going to build a roof over your head. They taught them skills such as weaving and other primitive skills. So they could manufacture some objects. And thus they could actually make a living and have a little bit of a decent living. This doctor, I forgot his name, one of the great humanitarian doctors of India in the time of the emergence of the Indian soul, he also was a Paul, but he was not a religious spiritual person. He was a proletarian, you know. He was a kind of person who said, what a social injustice. I'm going to fix that. So he was somebody who didn't act from God. It was not karma yoga. He acted from his own belly button. He acted from his own ego. Like I, Chandra Basu, am going to demonstrate to you that I correct this social injustice. Without realizing, the poor individual, that there was a lot of karma involved there. And Swami Shivananda doing it like karma yoga, he was sanctioned by God to do it. And he did not involve himself karmically into this. While Mr. Chandra Basu, or whatever his name was, he, do, he, he sank head forward into an ocean of negative karma. The result, he did this, and he managed to constitute a colony for lepers, in which he was kind of bringing lepers to the dignity of human life. Very beautiful, but from the ego, not from God. And one day he discovered leprosy on his own skin. He got contaminated. And then realizing, because in those days there was no cure for leprosy, then he shot himself. He committed this grievous error on top of everything. He committed the grievous error of suicide because he was too proud to see himself get disfigurated by this disease which he was seeing every day in its most frightening aspects. Thus, 
Chandra Basu or whatever the name of this doctor was, he, he got knowledge. He did a beneficial action and Kali gave him back some knowledge. Says, see, if you do like this, you get leprosy. What do you learn from this? Like it was a lesson. It was knowledge. All action, says Krishna, culminates in knowledge. This person did action and now God, through the agency of Mother Kali, was giving him some knowledge, which was meant to transform him. It was a painful knowledge, not easy to swallow. But it would have brought him, perhaps, to a higher degree of spiritual realization. Instead of taking this knowledge, he blew his brains. Because he couldn't... This knowledge was way too much for him. It was a pill which was too bitter for him to swallow. He did not realize he was an ignorant, self-centered person. Yes, with good intentions, but still ignorant and self-centered. And when he was confronted with a scope that he was dabbling into things which were way out of his league, then he got the leprosy. And you know what the ridiculous thing is? It has been discovered 20 years later that leprosy is not a contagious disease and it also is quite easy to heal nowadays. That's the ridiculous thing which you see. So Krishna is right. All these sacrifices are born of action and, I'm sorry, there is the yagya of knowledge, there is the sacrifice of knowledge and all action without exception when it is a divine positive action culminates in knowledge. You learn something about yourself, about the world, about God, about dharma, about life. You learn something. Therefore, either you perform action as sacrifice or you perform action as karma yoga, it all results in knowledge. So here Krishna tells us the same thing which Buddha tells us. Buddha says the highest value is knowledge. The, the way to curb the suffering, because Buddha ran away from home because he was tortured by this need. I want to find the solution to suffering. He saw death, he saw old age, he saw disease, and he simply decided, I don't want these evils. All the humanity suffers from these evils. People are trying to hide them as much as possible. But sooner or later, they are going to be there upon you. And Buddha said, I want to find the solution to suffering. And what's the solution with which Buddha came after years and years of sadhana, of spiritual practice? The solution is this. The suffering is, called by, is caused, says Buddha, by ignorance. The solution, therefore, is knowledge. There is no suffering when there is knowledge. And here Krishna, in his own spiritual environment, tells us the thing. You have to know who you are. You have to know God. You have to know Dharma, the will of God, the order of the universe. When you know, then it's the end. All action has to culminate into this Karma Yoga 
is made to culminate in knowledge. And in number 34, he gives a very important law which addresses to how to get this because he is giving it to Arjuna, who is his friend and disciple. But what about the rest of the world who reads this text? And Krishna gives the solution because everybody says, we, 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 me, 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 I am in search of knowledge. I also need to get knowledge. I abhor the, the ignorance and the suffering. Okay, how do you get that? Krishna says, know this through homage, which Swami Shivananda defines by the words long prostration. Through homage, repeated inquiry, like asking questions, good questions, relevant questions, and service, three conditions, I'm getting back to that in a second, the man of knowledge, the sages, the wise ones, who have realized the truth, who have experienced samadhi, the superior reality, they will teach you in that knowledge. Which means the good, the good old pan-Indian guru system. Like you take the knowledge from somebody who has it. Very, 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 very seldom do you have a man like Ramana Maharishi who did not have any physical guru or a woman like Mahananda Mai who was born with states of samadhi already at the age of two. Those are freak rare cases of which we have 10 in a century. And if you expect to be one of those 10 cases in a century, then realize that you have much bigger chances to win the national lottery. There are way more winners of the national lottery in all the countries of the world in a century than those 10 people. Therefore, it is completely unwise to bet on the fact that you will be the next Ramana Maharishi. Therefore, 99.9% of the people who got to spirituality, they got there because they got it from somebody. Yes, a guru. The word guru has obtained today very negative connotations because people take it selfishly and it's like somebody exploits you, takes money from you, does all sorts of things to you and then you discover that that person was a fake and a crook. That's simply because of the bad trips and the ego-centered things, philosophy, existing in Kali Yuga in those days. But Krishna is not affected by this and he speaks about the real thing. He speaks about the ideal thing which is still there. And he says, know this through one, homage, long prostration. It is a habit in India and in Tibet that people perform prostrations. When I lived in the ashram where I took the sannyasa with my guru, every morning when I saw my guru, it was my duty, my spiritual duty, and at the same time my pleasure to perform three full body prostrations in front of my guru. And I did. And I did not consider myself humiliated or anything through it because that is the rule of the game which works all the time and it has a deep spiritual meaning. So, through homage, through long prostration, says Shivananda, through repeated inquiry, therefore asking relevant questions, 
If you don't ask anything, the guru might not tell you anything. Because he is supposed to be like a mirror to you. What you need, he gives. You say nothing, it means you need nothing. A child, Ramakrishna, has this parable to understand that the gurus don't have the obligation to do something in this way. Ramakrishna has a parable. He loved parables, metaphoric, oblique stories, metaphors. And here is one of them. The foolish child, says Ramakrishna, tells to the mother, Mom, when I'm hungry, please wake me up. Because he was going to sleep. That's a foolish story. Like, how should I know when you are hungry and wake you up, telling you, oh, now you must wake up because you are hungry. And the mother, who is the divine mother and wise, she answers smiling in a bit of a cruel, it's a bit of a cruel smile for the ignorance. She smiles, simply telling you, my dear, hunger will wake you by itself when you'll be hungry. Like, if you don't ask me anything, I don't give you anything. When the hunger wakes you up, when the pain of existence, that thorn, is causing you enough pain, then you will come running asking for the necessary questions. Thus, people ask when they are motivated to ask. So, Krishna says, through homage, which is a respectful way of addressing, through repeated inquiry, and through service, service is seva, karma yoga, like serving, then those who have the knowledge and experience reality will teach you knowledge. Many modern people feel irritated by this and they think they can compensate it in some way. Those people think they are smarter and more spiritually shrewd than Krishna. If there would have been other ways of getting knowledge, Krishna would have said, by the way, you can also pay $5,000 and get it through the back door. Get it in a sneaky way. Krishna never says that. There is one traditional way to get knowledge. You might get knowledge like Ramana Maharishi hitting by a light, hit by a lightning bolt coming from heaven. You might, but the chance is so slim that you better don't bet on it. That horse has no chances to win the race. The chances are you want this kind of knowledge, the knowledge which eliminates ignorance and which eliminates pain, suffering. Everybody is looking for happiness and therefore not for pain, not for suffering. Remember that that's the way you get it. Krishna, apparently some 15 centuries before Christ, some 10 centuries before Buddha, says through homage, prostration, which is an external act. Tibetans do prostrations today to their gurus and to their Buddhas. Christian monks and nuns do prostrations in front of the icons, in front of the divine images. Therefore, it's nothing unusual. Through homage, prostration, but it's not the only way. It can be an external, fake way, theatrical and completely false. It's meant rather a heartfelt inner attitude through homage. But people say, oh, 
So my guru or the guru, Swami Shivananda, to whom you gave homage, is a big, proud, infatuated asshole who requires people to kiss his ass all day long. And if you don't give him homage, he's not give you the knowledge. It's again the same skewed, selfish, cynical, sarcastical, ignorant point of view. Because Swami Shivananda does not need that homage. There is a beautiful story with a Christian woman who later became a proeminent nun in Greece, a Greek woman, who visited the ashram of Swami Shivananda. And all the disciples of Shivananda being Indian, they were prostrating at the feet of Shivananda because in India there is this thing that you should touch the feet of the Guru, not only of the Guru. People in India, they should touch like children, They touch the feet of their father, of their mother, of their elders. It's a sign of respect, of showing I'm waiting for some grace from you. I'm placing myself a bit lower so you can pour something down to me. Because if I stand higher, you don't. It's an Indian tradition that I'm sitting on a dais. Because the tradition says the guru must sit a little bit higher than the pupils. Because this automatically generates a little bit of like it flows downhill. The grace flows not this way, but this way. It's a sort of subconscious, intuitive way of looking upon the things. And therefore the prostration is just an external thing, but the internal thing matters. In this school, for example, because I am not Indian and I am of a rational Western education and background, we do not do prostrations to the Guru and things like this, because I personally find them awkward and I find them, it's not that it's anything wrong. I have done them to my Indian Guru because he expected it and this was the thing in India. I myself do not expect them, simply because, again, We are, most of us, of a different culture, of a different background. That's why interpreted, it's not about an external manifestation. It's an internal attitude. So he says, through homage, through repeated inquiry, like asking the questions. Many things in the Bible, or I have seen some Tibetan biographies, and the pupils would go to the Guru, to the Tibetan Lama, and say, like to Milarepa, and say, please tell me your life. Inspire us. Tell us the story of your life. And the Guru would say, no, there are many bright things, there are also many dark things that you don't want to hear about. The story of my life is uh, like he would avoid. And then the pupils would come in the same day, or if they want to be very polite, next day, and they would say, but still, Guruji or Lama, Rinpoche, please tell us the story of your life with all the light and darkness which is in it. it. And the Rinpoche would say, no, it's not really appropriate because it's like I'm singing my own song of praise and I'm ringing my own bell and so on. No, no, it's not worth me. I'm too small to talk about myself. And the next day or five minutes later, the disciples would come again and stay, and this is the third time. And the third time the Guru will finally accede and say, okay, since you insist that much, if they gave up the first time, they wouldn't hear the story. 
It's a repeated inquiry. Again, selfish people will say, why do I have to ask three times the same thing? It's because selfish people hate to humble themselves, hate to say, please, please, because they are proud, arrogant, vanitous. They think that they deserve everything like this. In spirituality, it doesn't work like this. In spirituality, without humbleness, you don't get anything. If you are arrogant, all the gurus in the world, they would let you go and bite the dust. The arrogant one shall be taught a lesson. Like in the Bible, he who rises himself shall be humiliated, and he who humiliates himself shall be exalted. The last shall be the first, and the first shall be the last. That is the law. That is a cosmic law. And in spirituality, not only in Christianity. The yogis from India and one like Krishna know very well this law. Arrogance and vanity and pride is one of the most demonic things which the human being can have. And that is why you have to step over your vanity and pride and to learn humbleness. And that's why the gurus are practicing sometimes because they feel you ask something of a guru and the guru gives you sometimes a bullshit answer because you didn't ask that question right. You didn't ask it with surrender. You didn't ask it with humility. You didn't ask it because you really want to know. You asked it in an arrogant way. You asked it in a provocative way. And you can say, so what? Is the guru feeling offended about it? No. The guru is usually above this. If he is not above this, then he is not a guru. But the guru has to give you like a mirror, has to reflect you. People who are proud, they constantly saw the great Sri Lankan yogi, Yoga Swami, as arrogant. People who are shy, they believe that Yoga Swami was lacking self-confidence and was very hesitating. People who are sexually obsessed, they heard Yoga Swami reciting verses from Bhagavad Gita with sexual puns on them. Like Yoga Swami could be 20 different people. He changed personality depending on to whom he was talking. He was always like a mirror of the person he was talking with. And therefore, this is exactly what is here. The guru is not arrogant. In the fathers of the desert, there is a wonderful story where one of the young men, he lives with an elder, and the elders were the gurus and the young men were the disciples in that environment. And he, the young man is in the kitchen and he cooks some fish, funnily enough. He cuts some fish to cook it. And the old man says, George... And the young man called George drops the fish like electroshocked and runs to the old man. And he says, sir, what? And whatever, the old man tells him something or asks him to do something. Then he comes back to the kitchen and there was a guest witnessing all this. And the guest says, my God, how devoted you are to your elder. Look, you left the knife halfway in the fish. You didn't even finish cutting the fish all the way. 
and then go and answer to the old man. You stopped in the middle of the fish and like electroshock, you jumped and said, yes, sir, what? And they were living together for 10 years. Like it was routine. This was not that he was in the first day with the old man and he was still fresh and on his tiptoes. This was after years of wearing out each other, like after getting inhabited, accustomed with each other, and he still had this extraordinary edge. And he says, what an obedience, what a spirit of obedience you have. At which the young man looked at him like, you don't know what you are talking. And he said, this is not my power. It's not my obedience. It's his the humbleness and the service. and it, It's all his. I got it from him. And he said, do you want me to demonstrate to you that this is not just a statement? And then he did a crazy thing. He burned the fish. He cooked the fish in a totally wrong way and he basically ruined it. And remember, those people had very little food and therefore food was precious and significant for them. So he simply screwed the lunch of the old man. And then he took it shamelessly like this and served it to the old man. And the old man started eating it. And obviously he was eating food which was charred, smoked, not tasting good, obviously. It was a fiasco. And he was eating it in peace, humbly there. He was eating it. And after five minutes while he was eating that shitty food, and he never said, young boy, you screwed the food today. He kept on eating it there. Like, this is what God gave me through my apprentice. This is what I'm eating. And then the young man goes and provokes him. And he says, Father, how is the food today? Are you okay? Are you okay? And the, the old man shakes his head and he said, Yes, my son, the food is very good. Thank you. And then he came to the kitchen and told to the visitor, See, this obedience is not mine. This power is not mine. Like a humble person gets everything. In spirituality, you have to learn this thing. So, Krishna says, through homage, through prostration, whatever, external, through repeated inquiry, like ask the right question. Ask if you want enlightenment, ask. And through service, through service, like you have to serve. You have to give the measure of your humbleness and devotion. Not because the elder needs it. Not because the guru needs it. Because you need to put yourself into that state. It's always selfish. People project. They constantly project. They say, why would I do this? Oh yeah, so the, the boss gets more and more fat and more and more rich. That's not your problem. The fathers of the desert, those eminent Christian mystics from where this story comes, and who are ultra-puritanic, ultra-puritanic people. They say once you choose an elder, even if you see your elder fornicating with a woman or getting drunk with alcohol, which were completely unacceptable. They were, these were horrendous sins for these people who lived in such a puritanism. So they were like, unacceptable. Even if you see your elder fornicating with a woman or getting drunk, you should not get arrogant or proud and you should not let go. You should not quit or judge or start getting back and take revenge or something. 
because whatever it is there, the problem it is yours. You keep projecting the problem on somebody else. The problem is that most people do not have the right attitude to be spiritual seekers. The right attitude is this. Know this, says Krishna, through homage, through repeated inquiry, and through service, the man of knowledge who have experienced reality will teach you that knowledge. Tw 25 centuries later, Abhinava Gupta, arguably the greatest tantric guru the Indian history has known, says about his relationship with his guru, Shambhunata. He says, when I pleased my guru, Shambhunata, he gave me the supreme knowledge. That's all it takes. People say, oh shit, so you have to please the guru. It's very nice to be the guru then, you know, because everybody tries to please you. It's like in the Mel Brooks movie, comedy, ridiculous comedy, The History of the World, where they present one of the French kings, Louis, I don't know which, and he keeps banging all the beautiful women from the court of the king. And from time to time, he turns a grinning face to the camera, and he says, it's good to be the king, and so on. This is the interpretation of sarcasm, egoism, cynicism, and selfishness. People think, oh, Swami Shivananda was getting so pampered, so served. But Swami Shivananda was a modest, lovely, wonderful person till the end of his life. It's true, there are people who are not real gurus, and those people become corrupt. Power corrupts. And some people who have climbed on top of a pedestal to be gurus and they do not have the proper spiritual background, they will tumble off the pedestal because they would be kissed in the ass too much by too many people until they will start thinking that they are something special. But the point of it is not for the guru to be worshipped as something special. The point of it is that the disciple needs to have the right attitude to be able to open up and to receive. It's the right attitude like giving sacrifice. Why do we need to give sacrifice to Shiva? Shiva doesn't need my sacrifice. The universe needs my sacrifice. I need my sacrifice. Shiva can be extremely detached if I or you give any sacrifice at any time. Thus, Shiva can simply destroy this universe and create it once more. There's no problem for the divine consciousness. The divine consciousness is not encumbered by the shortcomings of the reality, of the manifestation. That's not the problem. Thus, here the last shloka which I wanted to, correct, to comment today, because then Krishna will conclude in the last six shlokas, creating a one, seven shlokas, creating a wonderful homage to knowledge. What is the spiritual knowledge and how it manifests? That we leave for the next week. But the last is, he says that all action culminates in knowledge and therefore you have knowledge and action are hand in hand. And he says, know this by homage, long prostration, by question, repeated inquiry, and by service, 
the wise who have realized the truth, who have reached enlightenment, will instruct you in that knowledge. That's the way to get knowledge, except perhaps for a Ramana Maharishi and a few singular cases, which are not cases which can constitute any educational method. That is why either your source of knowledge is in this school, or wherever it is, whatever retreats you do, whatever teachers you have, remember that in terms of spirituality, homage, repeated inquiry, and service are the conditions listed by Krishna for obtaining the spiritual knowledge. This is the way it's been going from 15 centuries before Christ. We did not invent it. It is not just some modern conspiracy of some Indian guru manipulators or something. It is a true thing that in the modern society there have been many people in India and in the West who did abuse this. But when we talk about the spiritual knowledge, there the things are always very clear. Spiritual knowledge can be obtained and that is the action of those few who are spiritual seekers. In this world, there will always be a percentage of the population, a minority. You are, most of you, you are among that percentage. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here tonight. And those people are feeling and calling themselves spiritual seekers. And they are going to whomever has spiritual knowledge, and they simply say, give me some spiritual knowledge. That spiritual knowledge, which people have, is obtained through the right attitude. In Zen, just to show a completely different way of putting it, but saying the same thing, one Zen master was pouring cup in a tea in a full cup, and it was overspilling on the table. And the, peop- the person, the arrogant person who asked him the question, said, what sort? You are spilling the tea. What, what is this? And the great Zen master simply said, your cup is already full. In a cup which is already full, nobody can pour any more tea. You come to me, said the Zen master, and you ask me to teach you the way to nirvana. But your cup is full. Like, you are arrogant. You think you know. If you think you know, why the heck do you come to me? I can pour tea only in the cup of somebody who has emptied their cup. When you are prepared to take my teaching, come and take my teaching. If you are not prepared to take my teaching, go. I cannot pour tea in a cup which is already full. That is the spiritual truth, and that expresses exactly the same attitude. What is the empty cup? When I have an empty cup, I come like a beggar. Like I don't know anything, or what I know is way too little. I haven't reached a state of accomplishment. Please, therefore, instruct me, help me, teach me. And I am giving homage, I am asking questions, and I am ready to do service. This is the law of spirituality, and it has been practiced in the East and in the West. Thus, 
we got to the point where Krishna is going to extol the value of spiritual knowledge. Why is it worth to get it? And this is the grand finale for the chapter number four, which we will reach next time. With this, we have finished the teachings for tonight. I hope you have learned very important skills for your life and for success in spirituality and beyond. Let us remain in a silent meditation for two, three minutes so that we calm down our spirit and we let some of these things, some of this teaching to sink in and then we will part for tonight.